Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Welcome to you all. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. Our program is produced by the Volcker Alliance in partnership with the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. I'm coming to you from the beautiful ocean state of Rhode Island, where the legislature is closing in on a $13 billion budget. And with me today at Penn IUR Mission Control in Pennsylvania is our great co-host, Susan Wachter. Hello, Susan. Well, thank you. Great, great to see you. The subject on our special briefing table today is the state of America's state budgets, where they are as the nation recovers from the worst of COVID, how states are spending their recent revenue windfalls from taxes and federal aid, how will budgets fare if the Fed's war on inflation brings on a recession, and what about all those tax holidays, rebates, and outright cuts that we're seeing this year? gas taxes, property taxes, even sales taxes to be suspended on back-to-school supplies in New Jersey. Each one of these is a weighty subject on its own, and our panel is primed to take them on, as well as answering your questions. So let's run down the roster of our honored guests today, and we are honored to have them. From the National Association of State Budget Officers, we have Executive Director Shelby Kearns to update us on NASBO's latest data. From Idaho, which is also Shelby's home, we have Budget Director Alex Adams, fresh from the state's biggest tax cut in its history. From the University of Illinois Springfield, please welcome my colleague, Professor Beverly Bunch, whose recent paper for the Volcker Alliance, you can find it on our website, uh, her recent paper tracked how states are spending almost $200 billion in federal budget relief money. And finally, for the view from Wall Street, which has not been the happiest place in the world these days, we have Howard Cure, partner and director of Muni Bond Research for Evercore Wealth Management. Before we dive right in, a few announcements. As always, everything today is on the record. We've already taken questions in advance from many of you in the audience, and we've left plenty of time for discussion, so be sure to stick with us to the end. And remember that replays of this and all past special briefings are always available at the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And remember that special briefing is supported by generous contributions from the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation. So thanks to you all. So now let's get the discussion going. Susan, would you please do the honors and introduce our first panelist? Yes, our first panelist, Shelby Kearns. We're so pleased to have you with us, Shelby, who is the executive director of NASBO. And NASBO has just released the spring fiscal survey of the states. So executive Shelby Kearns can tell us where are we in this time of turbulence, of potential recession, unprecedented inflation, and major tax changes. What are states doing? Thanks, Susan. I'm happy to be with you all today to talk about the data that NASBO collected for its 2022 spring fiscal survey. Um, that survey covers governor's proposed budgets and it was released last week, so it's hot off the presses and does set the stage for the discussion we're gonna have today that's, that's around state fiscal conditions and those tax cuts we've seen this year and, and how states are managing all of that. 
So I think the big question, of course, is how are states' revenues performing? What are we seeing? And for fiscal 2021, general fund revenues increased 16.5% over fiscal 2020 actual collections. And that sounds really sharp, and it is. It was um, actually the largest increase in the history of MASBO's report. But it's also really important to understand that a couple one-time factors drove that high growth rate. A lot of that just is attributed to the pandemic and the tax deadline shift that we saw during that fiscal year, which is interesting. And it feels so long ago that I think we forget maybe that it happened, that we had revenue shift from one year into the other. But that said, revenues in fiscal 2021 did perform considerably better than we expected. And a good way to look at that is if you combine fiscal 2020 and fiscal 2021 together, we saw state revenues come in about 3.2% above what states had in their mostly pre-COVID forecast. So better than we expected pre-COVID. For fiscal 2022, which is the for most states about to end, governors expected a growth rate of 3.2%. And at the time this data was collected, which was prior to April, when most states see their large collections, 49 states had reported that their revenues were coming in above those forecasts. So we do actually expect revenues to come in higher than expected for fiscal 2022 as well. And a lot of that has to do with the impacts of inflation, of course, as, as wages go up, people pay more in income tax, um, as the price of goods go up, the sales tax that's collected on those goods goes up. So states are actually seeing a boom from the inflation in the economy right now. And for fiscal 2023, governors were expecting a revenue growth of 1.4%. Now that Sounds like it's low, but it's still growth and it looks really healthy. And a lot of what we're seeing is a shift back to normal. During the pandemic, we saw consumers go from spending money on services to goods. And in a lot of cases, those services aren't taxed and the goods are. So you saw some bumps. So what we're expecting was sort of a return to normal. And of course, there are some risks out there in the economy that make us all very nervous as we see what's coming next. And we've got the inflationary risk to to consumers, we've got war in Ukraine, ongoing disruption still from the pandemic, but we're also seeing that people have strong bank account balances and they're still spending money. And they're spending money on hobbies and travel, not just on necessities. There's a lot of pent up demand in the economy and we're seeing that work its way through. It's also important to note that that 1.4% incorporates tax changes that were proposed by governors. And what we saw in governors' budgets that were released with it, 30 states proposed net tax reductions. So again, that's reflected in that revenue number. And in, in proposals, we saw that that would have a $14.1 billion reduction in general fund revenue, which is 1.3% of forecasted general fund revenue. Enacted tax cuts, like what we saw that were proposed, they vary in magnitude and scope, as well as the impacted revenue sources. And that's really important to take into account. We sort of have this idea of, you know, tax cuts or tax cuts or tax cuts, but they've really, really varied. And a lot of what we've seen are states using triggers. And in some states, maybe they're like New Mexico is reducing its sales tax, but they're using triggers. So if revenue dips too low, then that will be suspended. You know, we are seeing some ongoing fully enacted cuts. We're going to talk about Idaho's tax cut, South Carolina. You know, we've seen states phase out taxes. Kansas is looking at that with their grocery tax. Kentucky uses, is using triggers with its personal income tax. So we're really seeing a lot of variation in how states are implementing tax cuts. We also saw a lot of one-time rebates. When you have one-time revenues, we see these jumps that we're seeing in the economy. 
that's a great use of one-time funds and a way to put money back in people's pockets. Now we're seeing that in, in a number of states. We saw expansions and sometimes on a limited one-time basis with tax credits too, with earned income tax credits and child tax credits. Some were created just to kind of get us through this economic uncertainty that we have right now. And of course, Bill mentioned that we're seeing a lot of things with gas taxes due to the high price of gas. We're seeing a lot of suspension of gas taxes, or in some cases, delaying an increase in gas taxes that was supposed to go into effect. So there's these vary across the board. We've seen a lot of stuff in the news, and I think sometimes we forget that there's different ways of implementing these taxes, and there's a lot of different things going on in terms of whether it's one-time or ongoing. You know, the other thing to think about with revenues, of course, is what are states spending? And our spending rates are also high, like our revenues, of course, as we would expect. And a lot of that has to do with pandemic costs as well. But to put some numbers to that, in fiscal 2022 budgets, general fund spending is projected to increase by 13.6% over fiscal 2021 levels. Um, Again, that's the largest expenditure increase in over 40 years. So we do keep seeing uh, record revenues, record spending kind of go together. And of course, that, that growth rate is driven by a lot of things pandemic spending being one. There was a shift in reliance on federal funds to general funds in some program areas as we see some of the federal funding work its way through the system and states have to make assumptions on when some of that is going to end. We also see just a lot of one-time spending from states beating their revenue projections. So a lot of one-time investments that we're seeing. For fiscal 2023, governors are projecting a 4.2% spending increase. And again, that's spending down the the surplus that we're seeing. And also, these rates, it's important to note, vary considerably by state and are driven by some significant increases in a few states. And a lot of that has to do with restoring cuts as well. So the median general fund spending growth rate for all those years, fiscal 21, 22, and 23 combined, is at 5.3%. So that's a probably a better view of budgeted expenditures in the majority of states. And then really quickly, I want to touch on, as we talk a lot these days about recession readiness, what's coming in the economy, get a lot of questions about how states are prepared. I would say that states are better prepared than ever for a recession. Rainy day funds hit a record of 13.5% as a share of general fund expenditures in fiscal 2021. And total balances, we define that as states ending balances plus their rainy day fund balances, also hit a record of 25.4%. Those balances were expected to level off slightly in fiscal 2022 and fiscal 2023 as states spend down their surplus funds, mostly on one-time investments. But with the strong revenues and surpluses we're now expecting, I think we'll see more rainy day fund deposits and high-ending balance levels again. So again, I think states are in a great cash position and they're better prepared than ever for a potential downturn, which we always know there'll be a downturn and, and we're sort of always preparing for that. Well, thank you, Director. Shelby Kearns for that comprehensive and informative summary of the NASBO recent survey, which I should just mention again, is available on the PennIUR website as well as the VOCER website. And we now turn to Director Alex Adams, Budget Director of the State of Idaho, for his presentation on what the State of Idaho has been doing with this record inflow of revenues and what steps for both tax relief now, rainy day increases, and preparing for the future. Director Adams. Thank you, uh, Susan, and uh, greetings everybody from uh, Idaho. I'll talk specifically about what Governor Little brought forward to the legislative session in Idaho that took place in January of this year. 
our uh, legislature has adjourned for the year. So I'll speak about what happened. You'll notice that there's a lot of similarities between what, what I talk about in the context of a specific state and what Shelby talked about in the context of all 50 states. Like most states, Idaho is seeing record surplus. We did reinvest a portion of that in tax relief. Before I talk about what we did on tax relief, I do think it is important to talk about that broader context to put it into perspective. When I talk about the record surplus, when we came into the legislative session in January, our surplus was $1.9 billion. To put that in perspective, the anticipated general fund expenditures for the fiscal year that we were in at that time was $4.2 billion. So you're talking just under half of your entire general fund expenditures had accumulated as a surplus. At the same time, the state had a separate pot of money through the ARPA State Local Fiscal Recovery Fund. We had been awarded $1.1 billion that could be used for economic recovery, for capital investments in water, sewer, and broadband. So $1.9 billion general fund surplus, $1.1 billion of ARPA. One of the governor's budgeting principles, he actually outlined in his first state of the state speech well before COVID. It was back in 2019. And he said, it's not what you do in the bad times that gets you. It's what you do in the good times that will set you up for success or failure in the future. So the, the challenge of sitting in the good times of having a record surplus and the ARPA state local fiscal recovery funds was stitching those together into a coherent budget package that will endure revenue volatility and a predicted uh, recession here in, in the next uh, 12 to 24 months, and uh, bringing forth a budget that will remain structurally balanced with those storm clouds on the horizon. So for many of the reasons Shelby said, you know, our general fund surplus, we looked at a lot of it as one time in nature. Idaho was more opened uh, than some of our neighbor states. So that meant a lot of the weddings that might have occurred in some of our scenic neighbors moved into scenic Idaho. A lot of folks recreated here. A lot of folks chose to dine here. A lot of the stimulus checks begat a lot of uh, bike sales and kayak sales and things of that nature. So a lot of our sales tax receipts we viewed as one time. Same thing, there were a portion of the population that received unemployment benefits and perhaps made more on unemployment than they did at their native jobs. That is a taxable benefit in Idaho. So we treated a lot of the stimulus as one-time, made one-time investments, one-time down payments, things like that. So I think that's the backdrop for tax cuts. The other thing I'd highlight is all of the things that states do to hedge and prepare for uh, recessions. So before we even talked about our tax cuts in the package that we brought forward, we did the, the normal hedges. We made transfers to our rainy day funds. For context, we have been targeting an amount that was in a Moody's analysis from 2019 that predicted how much each state should have in their rainy day funds to whether the next recession should it be on the same scale and the scope of the Great Recession. And it's taken into account both revenue losses as well as predicted caseloads and things like Medicaid as well as unemployment. And the target for the state in round numbers is 18 to 22%. With our surplus, we made a transfer to the rainy day funds that gets us to the north end of that range. We'll be at 21% in uh, reserve. Only reason we couldn't get to 22% is we have some statutory caps on how much we can put in each of the rainy day funds. So we got to the statutory maxes, which is about 21% of our budget and reserve. The other thing we do is after your revenue and your expenditures, 
and your transfers, you have an ending balance, an unobligated ending balance for the general fund. And uh, we left a larger than usual amount as the ending balance. The amount we left in the current year equates to about 4% of our revenue forecast. So conceivably, we could have absorbed in this year a 4% reduction in revenue. So if sales came in uh, slower, if income came in slower, corporate came in slower, we could conceivably absorb 4% reduction in revenue without having to enact any retrenchment efforts or dip into the rainy day funds. That's not to say we wouldn't look at retrenchment and doing some of those things, but it, it gives you the flexibility to make the best choices for the states. So stronger rainy day funds, larger ending balance. And then the other thing that we tried to be really diligent about was taking our one-time accumulated surplus and investing them in things that will improve our out years resilience against recession. So one of the things we did is we have a consolidated bond payment program for state buildings. Uh, we paid off all debt in that consolidated bond payment program. That reduces our debt service levels in the out years, avoids interest costs. And it's just one less uh, thing that we have to deal with should the recession hit. Same thing, we made a huge down payment on deferred maintenance costs. We commissioned a study to quantify the state's deferred maintenance cost across the state buildings. We found it was about $900 million in backlog. We used $250 million from the one-time surplus to put us on a path to start paying off that backlog and put us on a path to pay it off over 10 years. And then we similarly invested in some state buildings that will have similar ROIs. So with that, we did have tax cut package that Governor Little brought forth. We did some one-time and some ongoing. I'll start with the one-time. We focused on income tax. We did a one-time income tax rebate of about $350 million. So it's administered by the state tax commission. They have the ability to do direct deposits uh, to Idahoans or send checks to Idahoans that do not accept direct deposits. The way we structured our one-time rebate is we gave everybody a 12% rebate on the income taxes they paid in 2020. So that meant folks had to file for taxes both in 2020 and 2022, and we gave them a 12% rebate. However, for individuals who did not owe income taxes, the minimum we set was $75 per taxpayer independent. So if you have no income tax liability to the state, uh, married and two children, you get four uh, $75 checks. One of the things we did with the rebate is we gave the option for Idahoans to accept the rebate or designate it to a specific government service. They could uh, donate it to public schools, they could donate it to uh, parks and recreation, or they could donate it to roads and bridge maintenance. Yeah, just for context, to date, we've uh, issued about 600,000 of the rebate checks and $191 million has been returned to Idahoans. Uh, two of them have uh, chosen to donate it to public schools totally at $243. So most Idahoans have chosen to accept their rebates and uh, use them uh, for what their heart desires. On the ongoing front, we did, again, focus on income tax. Governor cut income tax rates from 6.5 down to 6. So our top rate is a 6 for both individuals as well as corporate. It's the second straight year we've cut income taxes. So last year, we went from 6.925 to 6.5. This year, we went from 6.5 to 6, trying to improve the competitiveness of Idaho. Our fastest growing state in the nation percentage-wise, so it certainly seems that folks are looking at Idaho and our 
tax environment, our regulatory environment is a great place to grow a business, raise a family. The governor's tax package is part of that. Getting that top rate down to six, and then we did some consolidation of lower brackets as well. The impact was about $250 million ongoing. The way we calculated what we thought could endure is like most states, we revenue forecast over five years. You do a baseline forecast, optimistic forecast, and pessimistic forecast. And we made the pessimistic forecast is accounting for the probability of a recession. What we did is uh, we made sure that that tax cut would endure without uh, any days or retrenchment by budgeting to the pessimistic level for five years. Arguably, that's a conservative way of budgeting. We wanted to make sure that total package of what we brought forward would endure, would sustain. I would say that one of the things this governor is proud of is that uh, under his watch, Idaho has been upgraded to AAA status uh, for the first time with uh, two of the rating agencies. And as we calibrated our packages here, including the tax cut, we made darn sure that what we were doing would be viewed favorably. So with that, I'll turn it uh, back to Bill and look forward to any questions. Well, thank you, Alex. This is a very meaty template for fiscal reforms. I love the debt pay down and the infrastructure deferred maintenance pay down. We were honored to assist your office and the state of Idaho in creating this program. I think it's something that other states should should look at very closely. And I want to remind you all that you're tuned into Special Briefing, which is coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And by the way, watch this space for the new Special Briefing podcast coming to you soon, where you get your podcasts. Thanks again to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IOR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation for your generous support. And one last detail, Susan mentioned the NASBO Fiscal Survey of States. Links are available on our site and also on the Penn IOR site. I want to call your attention besides that, NASBO ITEP.org, it's ITEP.org, and NCSL.org, the National Council state legislatures all have terrific trackers, details on budget status and on tax cuts and what's going on with tax cuts, especially the ITEP uh, tracker. It's very useful for other policymakers to see what other states are doing as well as investors. So let's uh, get on with our discussion. Beverly Bunch is a public finance professor at University of Illinois Springfield. Beverly, you examined state spending of federal fiscal relief funds in our recent paper, The $195 Billion Challenge, which is available on the Volcker Alliance website. So tell us, Beverly, how are things working? out and what can be improved. Thanks, Bill. I'd like to do two things today. One is give you highlights of the report that Bill just referenced, and then also give you an update about what's happening in Illinois, my home state. First of all, in terms of the report, we've looked at to what extent the state's use of federal fiscal funds from the stimulus funds could possibly lead to a fiscal cliff. So as you probably know, the American Rescue Plan Act authorized $195.3 billion for state governments to be used to address the impacts of the pandemic. We looked at the initial state plans that were submitted last summer, and we'll be updating our report with the next round of plans that will be submitted this July. At that time, 40% of the plans funds had been allocated, and we found that the majority, the largest amount of the funds had been allocated for a category called revenue replacement. 
And this is a concern. This is an area that gives states lots of discretions how to use the funds. And it recognizes that states lost revenues during the pandemic, tax revenues. And so it gives them money to restore governmental services. And the concern is, would this lead to a fiscal cliff? These federal funds are one-time funds that must be obligated by 2024 and 2026 is the final date for spending the funds. So the question becomes, what happens if states use these funds to balance their budget and or to finance recurring programs? What will happen when the funds are no longer available? And will these states experience a fiscal cliff where they have to make major reductions in their programs? And of course, that relates to today's topics of state taxes, because one of the key questions is, will states have sufficient own source tax revenues to continue these programs? When we looked at revenue replacement, it really depends on how those funds are being used in terms of how much risk there is of a fiscal cliff. At the one end of the continuum is Florida, that's primarily using the funds for one-time capital projects, such as highways. And so that puts them at less risk of a cliff, although there are operating and maintenance costs associated with highway projects. But at the other end of the continuum were states such as California, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, each of which had a large lump sum contribution to their general fund with no indication of how those funds would be used. And they were significant in size between six and 10% of the budget amount. And so if those are used for recurring programs, there could be risk of a fiscal cliff. The situation is even more complicated because as many of you know, the American Rescue Plan prohibits states from using the federal stimulus funds to offset lost state tax revenues due to state tax reductions. Well, clearly we see lots of states as, as Susan and as Shelby was talking about are either have decreased taxes or want to. And what we see in the legal arena is last count, there were at least six lawsuits, 21 states involved, and they're contesting where the Congress has the authority to impose this constraint. So the verdict's still out on that one as it plays through the legal system. There are also ways that states may be spending fiscal recovery funds that could increase the chance of a fiscal cliff. They can use the money to restore government employees who were let go during the slowdown. They can use it to pay government state employees such as public health employees and public safety employees salaries if they're working on COVID plan programs. So what happens to those salaries? How are we going to fund it when the federal funds are no longer available? Plus, we see the pandemic has accentuated the need for programs such as mental health, substance abuse, anti-violence. And so states are responding to those needs. But again, who's going to pay for those programs when the federal funds are gone? We do have recommendations. The main one is for increased transparency to emphasize to stakeholders, including elected officials, that these are one-time funds that will go away. We also encourage states to do multi-year revenue forecasting, expenditure forecasting, but also multi-year budgeting, looking at these programs that are not going to have funds available in the future unless the state steps in and identifies other sources. And then as we saw our friends in Idaho doing, we recommend doing scenarios, looking at not only optimistic, but also pessimistic scenarios. What happens if the economy's growth slows down or takes a turn for the worse?
Okay, now let me flip hats and talk to you a little bit about Illinois. Illinois did use a lump sum payment to help their fiscal 22 budget. They had reserves from the federal stimulus funds of 2 billion, and it looks like they actually are using 1.5 billion. So that's a red flag for a risk of fiscal cliff. However, more recently, Illinois has been using federal fiscal funds to pay down their unemployment trust fund. They authorized in March a payment of 2.7 billion to pay off a portion of their federal loans although they still have 1.8 billion outstanding. With the surplus revenues that are coming in, Illinois is making prudent moves, such as they paid off their municipal liquidity facility loan from the Federal Reserve earlier than required. They've been paying down their unpaid vendor bills, which as you may know, were quite large in the past. They also have approved $500 million payments, extra payments to their pension funds, and $1 billion in payments to their rainy day fund, what we call the budget stabilization fund. But we still have major unfunded pension liabilities, and our rainy day fund is nowhere near as large as it should be. It'll be about 2% of the general fund budget, but it's a step in the right direction. In terms of the fiscal 2023 budget, it includes 1.8 billion in tax reductions. The state delayed inflationary adjustment in the motor fuel tax for six months, and that'll cost about 400 million. They suspended the one percentage state sales tax on groceries for a year, and that also will have implications of 400 million. They have a property tax credit, a one-time credit up to $300, and that's another 520 million. And then they have rebate checks of $50 per adult and 100 per child up to three children. And that accumulates another 685 million. And then they also have a sales tax holiday near the start of school. But those are all temporary or one time. The main permanent thing they did is they expanded the amount of the earned income tax credit and expanded the number of people are eligible. So with that, back to you, Bill. Well, thanks, Beverly. You know, this coming from a state that ran up $16 billion in overdue vendor payments, had a rainy day fund that was measured in minutes of state uh, general fund spending rather than days or days or weeks. It's a refreshing change. But you also noted some red flags, which I think we should certainly catch up on. Howard Cure at Evercore, your job is to make money for your clients and to worry about what could go wrong. We've heard a lot of good news today. Tell us about the, the good news and then tell us about what's keeping you awake at night. Right. So thanks for having me on this very distinguished panel. I'm so pleased to be part of it. You're right. Municipal bond analysts are people who look at glasses half empty instead of half full, and you're always trying to figure out what could go wrong. I mean, the good news is from a state perspective and their revenues, besides the inflow of federal money, the revenues after a, sh a short dip really more than recoup past virtually anyone's expectations about what they would be taking under these pandemic situations. So that's the good news. And then it's a matter of how are they going to spend the money? What are their needs when it comes to not only replacing revenues, but also dealing with issues that the rest of the economy is dealing with, retaining 
workers or bringing back workers who are laid off? What about their salaries and benefits in an inflationary period? We'd be looking at that, but then we want to step back and look at some things more fundamentally. The Pew Trust has put together some very interesting data on not only revenues and rainy day funds, but also the volatility of an individual state's rate of revenues. So, you know, you expect from states that have big mineral economies, the Alaskas and Wyoming's, North Dakota of the world, to have very volatile revenues. But then there are other states like California that's dependent on income tax on a small portion of the population or capital gains tax. So we look at that as well and what the states are trying to do for using this additional money. And the theme or the mantra you hear is you have one-time monies coming in. You want to try to spend it on one-time expenditures. And if you're going beyond that, be very pragmatic and systematic like the state of Idaho has been about when do you make long-term cuts in tax rates and what kind of scenarios are you running? And the scenarios, I think, are a little different than they were in the past. Every state goes through various recessionary periods, but I think the pandemic has highlighted some other issues with this as far as longer-term implications for the economies of certain states. And I think it's derived from not only the needs of people and sort of inequality issues, but also what it means for people, are they still commuting to the office? Can they work remotely more often? How willing are companies to permit those people to work remotely? And what does that ultimately mean for the tax base of any state. So that's something we look at as well. And then from the state, we never really as an investor worry about a state declaring bankruptcy. They can't legally. And then it's a matter of even defaulting, the chances are slim. But when a state needs to balance their budgets, do they do it on the backs of local governments or school districts or public higher education. I know we're talking about state issues, but that's how those concerns oftentimes manifest itself for investors like us, and we're representing from Evercore about what we're most concerned about. And then we brought up before some tax holidays, and I wanted to mention that as well. Another source of concern for any bondholder If you're, say, cutting a gas tax within a state and that state uses that gas tax or leverages that gas tax to issue debt for basic transportation infrastructure needs, what happens when you suspend it? Well, usually, you know, first of all, you as an analyst, you run to the legal documents to see what sort of guarantees there are. Usually the gas tax is supplemented by other more broadly transportation taxes. So what do you have? You may have a vehicle registration fee involved or a licensing fee or a sales tax on automobiles to help supplement that. 
And with states having a lot of excess money, hopefully, presumably, they wouldn't let their programs for infrastructure and the coverage for the debt dip below certain levels. So they'll use that excess monies. But I want to make the point that while they're not prohibited from doing that, they're also not legally required to do that. The other side of the legal issue is a lot of states are forbidden for non-impairment issues to somehow jeopardize the debt that was issued or leveraged off of that. So a lot of money has been flooding into state coffers and there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. The last point I want to make on this, and then I'll turn it back to you all, is it makes a difference who is in charge in the federal government, both on the executive branch as well as Congress. I think a lot of states did particularly well under this administration and the leadership within the House and the Senate with all this money coming in. Also, the way it was distributed, the first round was done purely on population. Now it was done not only on population, but also on unemployment rates as well. So states that really suffered in the pandemic, those states, a lot of them are West or East Coast states, did very well in proportion to their population. So what happens with the monies that are being distributed? How is that going to be monitored? Is there the potential for clawbacks depending on how that money is used, and what are the administrative burdens on the states and even the cities about setting up programs to help people during the pandemic as opposed to, say, making it simple and just replacing revenues or putting money in an unemployment trust fund, which is really the responsibility of businesses within the state to refinance So you're really helping businesses in the area and would probably require a lot less scrutiny. So I'm sure I can go on. I I want to be mindful of time. But those are some of the big concerns that we have or at least thinking about. But most states are doing well. But there are enough of a history of badly run states where they may be lapsing into bad habits. And for a lot of states, this is also an election year. And the last thing, when you have this much money, a lot of governors and state legislators want to do is be so prudent and mindful and go through this litany of possible problems that I just listed. Well, thank you, Harry. And as I said, we can depend on we, we can spend on an investor to see the chalice half empty. But some of the points you raised are real hornet's nests. And we've had a, a whole bunch of questions on gasoline tax cuts. President Biden is urging states to cut their gas taxes along with uh, his proposal to cut federal gasoline taxes. So for you and the panel, what is the chance that some of these temporary, these tax holidays become permanent or longer lasting. And secondly, the issue of clawbacks, there's a bunch of states that have sued over federal restrictions on using ARPA money, federal aid money to fund tax cuts. I'm not a legal expert, don't take my advice, but what is the risk of clawbacks and the the possibility that states will prevail over federal policy? I know you're concerned about it, Beverly, I believe you have some thoughts on that too. 
I'll be brief and let me start just on the gas tax. A couple of things, you know, when from my narrow, relatively narrow perspective, you worry about cuts in gas taxes when it's the security for the debt and then what the implications are. And hopefully there are other sources. A couple of other things on gas taxes. Number one, you should be asking, is it really the most effective way to help people who are struggling? Are all the gas tax cuts being filtered down to the consumer as well, or more the commercial side capturing a lot of that? So, you know, those are broader issues. And then just talking about clawbacks and litigation and hearings, really a concern is a big time-consuming activity to try to predict that. And you'd really like to avoid having to have that risk. And I think that would play out, if it's a serious risk, that would play out in just the price of the bonds in the secondary market as well. If there's a real concern about the potential of losing significant revenue. So that's all I wanted to say, and I'm happy to pass it over to very knowledgeable people. Well, we're going to do a jump ball. I know, Beverly, you had some thoughts about it, and I'd also like to hear Alex and Shelby's thoughts and any data Shelby has on these topics. That would be great. So, Beverly, why don't you take it? Yeah, so I want to talk about the prohibition on states using federal funds to offset revenue losses due to tax decreases at the state level. And there's so far six cases. And the main issues are, one, if under the spending clause of the Constitution, if Congress is going to attach conditions to grants, they need to do it in an unambiguous manner. And so a couple of the cases have focused on that and said, no, Congress did not do that. And so there's injunctions against the federal treasury implementing or holding the states in those particular court cases to that provision. The other thing involves what's called anti-commandeering, and this is really a matter of state sovereignty. Does the federal government have the constitutional authority to tell states how to run their state tax policy? And again, one of the court cases has ruled that Congress has gone too far. But each of those cases I referred to have been appealed by the Treasury, and last I heard they're still working their way through. And then there's a couple of cases that the courts ruled the states don't have standing to bring a suit. And that's disappointing from a state perspective because they're saying they're not hurt yet. But states want to know in advance, can I do this as opposed to doing it and then being subject to clawback later and finding, well, now I am hurt. We'll know more in July when the states file the reports. There's a series of questions that the states will have to answer about changes in state tax law. And it's got, are there ways to offset the lost revenue besides the use of federal funds? So you can increase one tax to offset another one, or you can make cuts beyond those from the stimulus, or you can have what they call organic economic growth. And so it's a fairly complex issue. Susan, do you have a question, please? Yes, I thought we could pull back a bit, and this is directly to you, Beverly, and Shelby as well, and that is, it sounds like many states have taken steps to avoid a fiscal cliff and from this flow of funds, which won't be there in the future from the feds, and also in light of a potential recession. And Bev, you talked about uh, the spectrum and some no risk of a fiscal cliff, 
Florida, and some on the other end, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania. But can you give us more broadly, who's in between? Those are only four states. And then here's the broader question, are states doing a better job thinking about the potential recession coming this time than they have in the past? Are we seeing some more forward-looking thinking and actions? You want to start with this perhaps, Shelby? Sure. I think there were a lot of lessons learned from the Great Recession. That's actually when I started in, in state budgeting, and I can tell you those scars run deep. You don't go through that and then not carry that into your preparations going forward. And if you've ever been in a room of state budget officers, it doesn't matter how good times are, that's the first question that comes up. When's the next recession? What are the chances of a recession? What are we doing? So you've definitely seen states take a lot of steps. You're seeing long-term forecasting both of revenues and expenditures. You're seeing one-time investments, not a lot of putting one-time money into ongoing programs that then when that money runs out, states would go off that fiscal cliff. You're seeing a lot of steps, the savings that states are doing, the way they're investing their funds. Alex talked a lot about the steps that Idaho's taken about paying off debt and all of those things. So I do think that the, the lessons were learned and states don't want to repeat those mistakes. Beverly, what are you saying? Well, I think the lack of transparency makes it hard to identify and quantify. So we've got counts of states, you know, 19 states are using revenue replacement as of last year, but not all of them are doing it for recurring. But there are a bunch of states using it for capital. We've got 17 states using it, federal funds for water and wastewater, 18 using it for broadband. So I don't think we can paint a broad brush and say we're definitely headed to a fiscal cliff. I think what we're trying to do is just raise awareness at this point and one thing the state of Florida does is they have a financial outlook statement. They have a separate column for non-recurring and they put the federal revenues there that are non-recurring and the outlays. And I like that because it helps them have a plan for going forward. Susan, I would, I would just add really quick that that revenue replacement can sometimes make it sound like states are putting money into ongoing programs, that they're replacing lost revenue. And a lot of that's being done in more of an administrative convenience way. And that's been encouraged by Treasury that if you report expenditures under a revenue replacement, the thresholds aren't as high. You don't have such a, an onerous reporting burden. And so, as Beverly said, that does lead to some transparency issues when you're trying to, to mm -hmm. suss out what's going on. But not all of that spending is propping up ongoing state programs. And I think that's an important thing for everyone to remember. So if I may just segue to Director Alex Adams for a moment, did you get pushback and how difficult it was to take prudential steps? And was transparency a part of your goal in terms of planning out your response to these unusual surpluses and how you were going to plan forward? In general, our governor worked very closely with the legislature and his plan was pretty well received. If you look at the tally for the bills that made the transfers to the rainy day funds, passed, paid off debt, put money to deferred maintenance and those things, they passed with overwhelming majorities and in some cases were unanimous. So I think in general, the predisposition of our legislature is to be prudent, to be fiscally conservative and to prepare for the times ahead. There might have been some debates in the margin is getting our rainy days to 21% uh, too high, Should, you know, is 18 sufficient? And can we put the difference to some more one-time rebates? So there are always going to be those discussions around the margins, but in terms of the big picture, pretty well received. This ARPA discussion about revenue replacement, I think Shelby nailed it. I think a lot of states are claiming revenue replacement for purposes of administrative convenience, as opposed to plugging the dollars into ongoing operations. 
Idaho, we, we've got 1.1 billion from the ARPA State Local Fiscal Recovery Fund. We claimed 10 million of uh, revenue replacement, and that was the administrative convenient thing that they allowed any state or local government to claim up to 10%, and you could use it then for any government service. So for the remainder, besides that, the 10 million, we put it to one-time capital, drinking water upgrades across the state, sewer and wastewater upgrades across the state, broadband, workforce housing, things that will have an ROI for decades to come and lower the out years costs for local units of government across the state. So we, we do feel pretty good about the plan that we put forward, not creating fiscal cliffs. And in fact, prior to appropriating any of the ARPA dollars, we work closely with our legislature to pass a piece of code that outlined the use of funds, one-time money for one-time uses, investing capital, long-term ROI for our grandchildren since they'll pay the debt service on this. It actually had language about not shifting to general fund over time and not creating new programs where there'll be an expectation state taxpayers are holding the bag after the expiration of the federal funds. I think it's important to notice a note, and maybe Shelby wants to follow up on this, that a lot of the improvements we've seen in state budgets were taking place before the pandemic. The latter years of the economic recovery, which took a long, was a long, slow slog to get revenues back to where they were before the Great Recession. But we saw states really diminish their use of, of one-time actions to balance the budget. We saw states like Connecticut take very proactive measures to build the rainy day fund. And rainy day funds in general were at close to a record high before the pandemic. So the stage was being set. The states that were chronic debtors, if you will, had big pension debts, big bond debts. The record was a little more mixed, but there was a foundation being built before the bottom fell out and the Congress stepped in to stop out the losses. Is that your impression, Shelby? It is. I, I think you really covered it all there. States didn't want to go through that pain again. That was, it was hard on states. It's hard on citizens. It's hard on everyone. So you really saw a lot of lessons learned and you really saw everyone putting more emphasis on saving, more emphasis on being in a better position and and moving forward in a way that would minimize a lot of those problems. But unfortunately, with macro instability, there will be pain, even though state and locals can protect to some degree. Howard, we talked about the potential of recession, but right now we have higher interest rates. Perhaps you and others as well than after can comment on is that important, higher cost of funds, or is that really secondary? So we really haven't focused on infrastructure, except briefly to mention that a lot of states are using some of this federal money for infrastructure projects, basic water and sewer, things that don't make the headlines or have big ribbon-cutting ceremonies. But yeah, it's not only interest rates, so you're going to be issuing debt to finance this unless you have a pay-as-you-go basis. It's also just with the economy generally, the costs of the materials that you need and the labor costs. And then the other thing with a lot of states and cities and entities across the country who really helped in balancing their budget by refinancing a lot of their debt. So that's not a, an option as much anymore. Also, Bill mentioned the pension issues and how that used to be almost always one of the major topics of vulnerabilities for a lot of states that have unfunded pension liabilities, while the fixed income portion of the investments are helped. 
the equity portion in a lot of states have reshifted their asset allocation to a lot more commodity, real estate, and equities, they are going to take a hit. They rode a wave for a while, and you saw positive numbers. It takes a while for on a quarterly basis for this to change, but it's going to change, and it's going to be appearing or reappearing again as a major issue. Can I follow that up with Alex and, and maybe Shelby also? Alex, you talked about Idaho's big infrastructure program. How are you being affected by shortages of labor, shortages of material, rising prices? I've seen accounts in the AP and the Wall Street Journal about basically a lot of the federal aid is being eaten up by higher costs. And if I may, Bill, with two minutes to go, this is kind of a lightning round. So very quick on Bill's point, you know, we made a lot of investments in infrastructure. We tried to shoot for targets. For example, we put 200 million towards local bridges, which would have cleared out a third of our local bridge maintenance backlog. But $200 million isn't going quite as far as it used to for some of these large capital projects because of labor, cost of materials. So some of our three-year plans might now be five-year plans and things like that. There's a lot of cost overruns and some of our building upgrades. It is having a real impact. And frankly, one of the biggest issues that we're seeing is for some of the large-scale capital projects that we're financing under ARPA is that 2026 end date that's ossified in Treasury guidance. That's generally at odds with what we're seeing in the labor market and the materials market. So some flexibility on that 2026 end date would be welcome for states. My really quick wrap-up, I think what you're generally seeing is states taking prudent actions. There are a lot of tax cuts out there, but I think you're seeing prudent actions that are preparing ourselves and ensuring that we can maintain structural balance over time. And uh, certainly welcome anyone to reach out with any questions afterwards. We thank you very much, Director Alex Adams and all of our extraordinary panel. I will be turning this over to Bill in just one minute as we wrap up. This was a terrific panel on short-term challenges and long-term as well. One of the long-term challenges ahead is shift from work from home, work from anywhere long-term. What impacts will that have? And we will be covering that in our next session, Bill. Well, thanks, Susan. And yes, it is time to wrap up. Thank you again to our great panelists, Shelby Kearns, Alex Adams, Beverly Bunch, and Howie Cure. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.